One of the things I love about the Psalms is the way that it reveals things about God's nature and character that are still true today. And I think sometimes we miss it because we don't necessarily understand some of the words and the imagery. So we're going to pull some of that apart today that in, in a way that I hope and I pray that it helps you understand things a little bit better. Stay tuned. Hey friends, welcome to the Hearing Jesus podcast. Do you sometimes doubt if you're truly hearing God's voice or if it's really your own? And how do you know the difference? Do you ever struggle to feel confident in your relationship with God and what He says in His Word? Do you sometimes feel stagnant or like maybe you hit a wall in your spiritual life? Hey, I'm your host, Rachel Grohl, missionary, author, pastor, and life coach, and I have been there. I too was doubting God's voice in my own life. I felt insecure about my relationship with Him, and I wanted to be obedient to what God was calling me to do, but I wasn't quite sure how to figure out what that was. I felt like I was wasting time trying to figure it out, and I just wanted a way to understand His will for my life. The answer for me was found in the pages of the scriptures, as I learned how to understand what they were actually saying. If you're ready to grow in your faith and to step confidently into the calling God has for you, then join me as we dig deep into God's Word so that you can learn to live out your faith in your everyday life. Hey friends, real quick, I just want to let you know, right now we are going through the Psalms and some people just have a thing about writing in their Bible or they don't have a physical Bible because they use their phone or whatever reason. I just want to let you know that I have some resources available that I think will help help you with that. I have a note-taking Bible and I have a journaling Bible, a couple different kinds to choose from in the She Here shop. And you can find that um, linked in the show notes. And I just want to encourage you, we are studying God's word. We are diving into God's word. It is not sacrilegious or is not going against God to write or highlight in your Bible. In fact, he wants his word to be in you. That's why we have it. And um, if you officially need permission, then I'm giving you permission. It is okay to write in your Bible. So I just pray that as we go along this journey together, that you would start to have an understanding of how to get this word in your heart and in your head. Hey friends, welcome to the Hearing Jesus podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Grohl. Today we are in Psalms chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, that he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now there are a number of things going on here, and I want you to remember what I said at the beginning of this study that there are certain psalms that are considered messianic psalms, meaning they point forward to Jesus. Psalm chapter 2 is one of these messianic psalms. So we're going to go through and kind of look at some of the things that are going on in this passage behind the scenes. For starters, the first verse talks about 
the nations raging. And in other translations, it would say they conspire. And so you may wonder if, if you're kind of like me, why the nations would be raging, why they would be upset. And, and really what we're seeing here is um, in this time period, when there was a change in the king. So when one king either died or um, was overtaken or for whatever reason, there was a change in the kingship. It created political instability. And so when that change occurred with a nation that was particularly powerful, the, the kings or the rulers that were in charge of the nations that were less powerful and that were under its control, they would sometimes rebel against the new king or the new overlord. And so frequently what would happen is they would form an alliance and then they would rebel together. So we see that um, when the Assyrian king came into power and there was an alliance involving King Hezekiah who was the king of Judah at the time. So we see that happen. Um, there's basically this idea of one king who, whose nation is more powerful, who would do all sorts of things. Like the, these lesser nations would have to pay uh, like a tribute to that king. They would have to pay like a tax to that king. Um, and really sometimes when there was a change in power, there may be some sort of opportunity for things to change. So this political upheaval is what we're seeing in Psalm chapter two, verse one, where it says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? That's what it's talking about. In uh, the NIV, it would say, why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? Also, I want you to remember when I was explaining how the Psalms is approaching things, really what we're seeing at the beginning of this is like this poetic style of asking rhetorical questions. And so if it would be foolish, as we learn from the instance of King Hezekiah, when uh, coming against God's chosen king in that situation was foolish, how much more foolish is it to come against God as king? Because remember what happened in that instance, even though King Hezekiah was king of this tiny little country in compared to the Assyrian king, God in an amazing way showed up and helped King Hezekiah defeat that that Assyrian king. And so you can go back and you, you can read it. The story is amazing. I love the story of King Hezekiah and his, um, the way that he standed on God's promise. And we see uh, against all odds, 180,000 troops die overnight, um, for, for the bad guys basically. And King Hezekiah is given wisdom of God to, to bring the spring inside the city gate. And it's, it's amazing. You need to go read it if you're not familiar with the story. So that's kind of the, the, rhetoric that's going on here. And we're talking about kingship because again, in this context, in this people group that this was written to, this would have been very familiar language for them. In verse two, it talks about the anointed one. And I think that's important because we don't live in the kind of culture where we typically understand um, at least the is Israel's kind of king or what was happening in that, that time period. The anointing of a king with oil was basically to inaugurate him. So that would kind of be his inauguration in office. And it was um, 
practiced by a lot of different cultures. And so in this ancient Near Eastern culture, which is what we're talking about when we're talking about Old Testament, um, that was something that would be very familiar to them, that they would be doing as part of their initiation or inauguration ceremony of a, a new king. Would They would be anointing him with oil. The oil is kind of a symbol of power. And if you did the She Hears Bible study, uh, you know that this happened um, with Jesus when Mary anointed him right before he was um, sent to the cross the week before, right before the triumphal entry. Uh, we see a, a, a kind of anointing that was done with him. This, this kingship anointing was really uh, common in that culture. We have a connection to that as followers of God, of, as followers of Jesus, because the anointing also represents something else. So for, for us, what we would say is that is kind of a divine enablement or an empowerment. And, and it's an anointing will symbolize that somebody's set apart for something. So the biblical ritual of anointing is really where oil is going to mark the person who God has poured his spirit out on for a certain kind of authority in a certain kind of service. And so we see that in 1 Samuel, um, I think it's chapter 9, chapter 10, I think even chapter 6 mentions it. But in the ancient Near East, oil was this symbol of um, a couple different things. It could have been a, a symbol of a friendship, like in a diplomatic relationship. It was an anointing that was sometimes used during legal contracts it would have definitely been used during a marriage ceremony. And so anytime there was like some sort of contract that would be happening, it could have been also included as this anointing as a representation of the covenant relationship. And so we see that between um, Yahweh, which is the word that they, the name for God, especially that we see that in Old Testament. So Yahweh and the king that he anointed or set apart for service. And so in, in verse 2, when it talks about the anointed one, that's what it's referring to. Jesus is referred to as the anointed one. And so this is part of what we're starting to see is the beginning of this prophetic word about the anointing one that would come later in Jesus. Because God commissioned and empowered Jesus, essentially as the king to rescue God's people from their sin, to restore their relationship with God, and really to kind of rule over God's kingdom. And so when we hear all of this talk about kingship and anointing, it's really foreshadowing King Jesus. I want to jump down to verse 7. Verse 7 says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. So the decree of the Lord from the earliest times in this culture in Mesopotamia, it really was believed that the gods determined who would be a king and, and which person would become king for the next season. They believed that, um, now I'm, I'm saying not Israelites, but in general, this culture, they believed that the gods would determine that. So King Hammurabi who was in Babylon at the time, he basically claimed that his kingship came from a council of the gods. And so, um, I can't remember which God it was, but he, he, he blamed, or I guess not blamed. He gave the credit to a God that granted him kingship and decreed 
his rule over that culture. Um, in Egypt, this happened. So the, the Egyptians felt that the their gods would choose them or set them apart or anoint them and decree them to be king. What we see here is similarly, um, but in a way that is done through God's providence, the way that God is setting up Jesus to be the king. And and I'm explaining this this aspect of kingship and decrees because this is foreign language for us. We don't really talk like this. But in their world, remember, who is this originally written to? They understood this language, this decree. Like, I, I don't know if you guys are like me, but sometimes, especially when I was younger, I'd read this. I'm like, what does this even mean? I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. I don't, I don't understand that. That's what it's talking about. Proclaiming the decree in that culture, they all understood what that meant. And so what we're seeing here is God, Yahweh, proclaiming the decree of, okay, Jesus is going to be set forth as king. So it says, he said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. That phrase, become your father, it literally translates to brought you forth. And it's really similar to a phrase that we use to describe a woman giving birth. It's it's kind of essentially the, the same use there. But it also was a technical term that they used for basically a king when he presented his son before the people. And so the royal presentation, if you could picture, I know there's a lot of imagery on the news and things right now in the media coverage of um, the transfer of power with, with the king. But if you can remember the last time one of the royal children was born, um, the royal family will come out and present that child to the crowd. That's basically the same language that's being used. So it, it can be descriptive of a, of a child being born, but it can also be descriptive of a king presenting his son to the people. King David did that with his son Solomon. And basically here, it's applying to God presenting Jesus as his son and with his anointing. So again, remember, anointing means set apart for a specific job. So a commissioning or an authority or an empowerment to do a specific job. And so Jesus, as the ultimate prophet and priest, would be the ultimate king. And we see that later throughout the New Testament, Matthew and Acts and Hebrews and Second Peter. We see a lot of the same verbiage being used. A lot of this imagery would have been really common in this culture, in this time frame for these people. So as um, the Psalms are explaining God's relationship with Jesus, they're doing it in a way that makes sense for that culture. And I, I love that because I feel like sometimes we forget that God knows us intimately and wants to wants us to understand him intimately. And, and what we see here is this example of him contextualizing for the audience that he's speaking to. And I think that helps us when we are thinking about how we are to explain about Jesus. I think if we went in to a high school and said, God proclaims the decree of the Lord, I, I don't know how many kids you're, you're going to really attract with that kind of language. But instead, if you go in and you say, you know what? Um, God cares about your brokenness and he loves you 
And you don't have to keep striving to be somebody that you're not because God created you exactly the way that you are. I think there's a difference. You see the difference? I, I, I think you would catch a lot more hearts with that verbiage and that, that terminology. I think we have to contextualize the message for the audience that we're speaking to. Verse 8 says something pretty interesting. It says, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. There was no human king or no earthly king that was ever promised authority over all the nations as an inheritance. That promise could only be fulfilled and was only filled, fulfilled in Jesus as the Messiah, as the king. And so that promise that we see is a very intentional mark towards um, introducing Jesus as the king. Down in verse 9, it says, You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. I I did not know what that meant until I researched it. Um, but again, think, think, thinking through the original audience and the original context of where this was written, defeating your enemy with a scepter, it was basically a club-like weapon that they used in war that was a really common image for the ancient Near Eastern kings. And so um, the Egyptian kings, they would basically control the foreign kings by inscribing um, the names of those kings with curses on these, these pottery jars, and then they would smash them. So this ritual was something that was um, done in Egypt and other parts of the, the ancient Near East. It was not something that would be foreign to the to the people of Israel. For us, this this may be the first time we're ever even hearing that. But to them, he's speaking the language of what Jesus was going to do in a way that they could understand. So, um, and and also there was like this this symbolism there too that when you break handmade pottery that's made from earth basically it's it was a symbol of destroying your enemies and that destruction of your enemies by breaking the pottery was something that was understood well across the culture across the entire ancient near east and so i think it's interesting that again we're seeing this written in a way that the original audience can understand and it's a way that's foreshadowing what Jesus was going to do. I want to, given that insight, I want to read this again to you. And then I want you to think about what it reveals to us about God. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God, we thank you for the way that um, your word reveals to us aspects of your character and your nature and the way that we can see Jesus in the foretelling of what's happening in this passage. Lord, thank you for the kingship of Jesus and the way that long before he was even alive, you started to prepare the way for him. You started to decree, proclaim the decree of the Lord so that we could recognize him when he came. Lord, I thank you for the way that um, you pursue people where they're at. And it doesn't seem to matter if it was in the time of the ancients or now, in the location of Mesopotamia or the United States or wherever we are, any country, you are a God that longs to meet us where we are at. God, help us to recognize that in the pages of scripture. Help us to recognize the way that you pursue your people because of your great love for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have a better understanding of the things that you say in scripture, that we can understand who you are and the way that you continue to pursue us. God, I thank you and I praise you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey guys, before we go, I just want to remind you there's a couple free resources available to you that we would love to have you join us on. The first is the free Facebook group. It's the Christian Women's Daily Bible Study. Sorry, guys. But it's a place for women to connect, to pray for each other, to ask questions about the podcast, all sorts of things. I pray that's a blessing for you. And also our email list. You can get on that. Um, if you're not already on it, you can just go to shehears.org to sign up. And every Monday, I send out an email that has some journaling prompts and some resources available for you. Again, totally free. I just put those out to, to bless you. And I pray that they kind of help you get to a place where you're hearing God's voice more clearly. Hey friends, if this podcast helped encourage, empower, or equip you for God's call in your life, I would love it if you would head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. That's the number one way you can support my show. You can also join our free Facebook community or Instagram page where I share inspirational tips, resources, and prayer throughout the week. Hey, I want you to know I'm praying for you this week. Know that you are loved, you are cherished, and you are His.